Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, we bring you new ideas and insights from business leaders, military leaders, and thought leaders. Ideas and insights that will help you think more deeply and lead more effectively, so that you can better navigate your complex world. Here again are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker Bryce Hoffman, and former Royal Air Force Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Bryce Hoffman, President of Red Team Thinking, author of the book Red Teaming, and I am joined as always by... Good day, Marcus Dimbleby, coming from London. Great to be on the show again, and this week we have a fabulous guest with us. We have Mick Paisley, who's a British Army veteran, ex-National Criminal Intelligence Services, and has been a Chief Information Security Officer in high-threat, low-risk appetite environments for over 20 years. And he's currently the Chief Security and Resilience Officer at Mimecast. And it is fantastic to have you with us today, Mick. It sure is, Mick. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the chat. What are we going to talk about, Marcus? Well, I think we're just going to ask Mick about his journey, really, and where he's come from, where he's going, and how his life as a CISO has been over these last 20 years. So, Mick, let's start at the beginning. Take me back to your army days and since then. Wow, that's quite that's quite a broad uh, brush. I think, <laughs> I'll tell you what, if I, I'm going to try and answer it this way, if that's all right, which is rather than giving you a you know, a, a history of where I've been and what I've done, which nobody's interested in. I think the key, the, the key thing that I'd want to raise is, is the, the different world that we inhabit today to the one that the working environment that I went into in, you know, the, the start of the 1980s. They think that we, we sit in a place, I mean, when I started work, there's no computers, there's no mobile phones, there's no nothing, right? Now, within that time, we've seen a revolution beyond scale that I think sometimes we forget about the, change and the velocity of that change that we've witnessed in that you know that that career and i think that people like myself who inhabit leadership positions in organizations now we are creations of the old world we're we're creations of that you know let's call it the industrial working environment for once a better way of putting it and yet we're moving rapidly into a different world which is an information age and we stand astride both of those environments. We have the experience of time and challenges and failures because they're where you learn the most, as we always know. But we're sitting astride that old world and this new world. And this new world is, is completely different. It, it's driven by technology and change. And there's plenty of other guests that you've had on that have spoken about VUCA and hyper-connectedness, complexity. You know, my environment in terms of cybersecurity, cyber resilience, you know, there are so many different competing things now in that that space to make it super complex, um, not least of which is the fact that you're dealing usually with an intelligent adversary who intends you harm. I mean, with state that, actors these days. And, and state actors, you know, yeah. well-resourced, well-capable. Um, we're also dealing with rapid expansion and change in technology and the need for organizations to compete in terms of the speed at which they generate and expose value to customers. We're dealing with a completely different demographic of workers 
as they come through. Not bad. So just to be clear on that, not bad, but different and needing different ways of, of working. Um, and we're, we're, we're dealing with this hyper-connected environment. I mean, not least in my world is software supply chains. You know, the world is run by software, as the cliche goes. Um, and nobody really understands what software is built of anymore because over the years, you know, it, it, it's been built on top of things, on top of things, on top of things. So what actually constitutes the supply chain is, is a challenge for us. And we see adversaries that are seeking to abuse those trust relationships as a means to gain access to organizations or, you know, to cause harm, to cause damage, to disrupt uh, uh, services, etc. So this is a long winded answer. But what's that journey? The journey is, is working in that world where there's no telephones and no Internet, no mobile phones to suddenly working in this environment within a, a, a single span of career. And obviously that means from a journey point of view is, is that. If you want to have any chance of being successful, you've got to adapt and evolve as you go through to the circumstances that you find yourselves in. And that evolving risk profile, for want of a better way of putting it, or risk context to be able to, to, to manage it effectively, because that ultimately is what our role is. You, know, you might work in a security team or a resilience team or a cybersecurity team. But the fundamental reason for almost any organization having a team like that is to manage risk and to help that organization navigate its way through the challenges of this complex world in a way that allows them to expose that value. And, you know, it's interesting if you think about it from a security point of view. I mean, the time frame that you're describing, Mick, you know, when you're starting out, security means keeping people out of buildings and, and making sure employees uh, don't walk out with, uh, you know, sensitive materials in their briefcases and, you know, that sort of thing. You evolve to a point where security is about protecting systems from, you know, a, a malignant teenager in a basement somewhere, you know, who wants to show his friends how how sophisticated he is by, uh, you know, entering entering a system to now, you know, a world where private industry is is the target of state actors and, and very sophisticated organizations. When I was listening to you talk, I was thinking of, I was talking with a uh, guy that, that we work with, one of our clients and, and is same same position, similar position to you at a major telecommunications company. And he is former U.S. Air Force, you know, cybersecurity guy, you know, SIGINT guy. And he said, I am dealing with more sophisticated threats with more wood behind the arrows being shot at me every day now than I was when I was responsible for defending the U.S. government's most sensitive nuclear networks as 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 a military officer, and he said, you know, and and and, and I, you know, my organization is not prepared for that. You know, they're not; they weren't. These people didn't come up in a world where they were 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 fighting on the world stage against you know the FSB and 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 the and the and the PRC. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that. For most organizations, they haven't designed themselves to be secure. They've designed themselves to, to, to generate value and deliver to a customer need. And it is true to say that the level of attack is astronomical. It is true to say that it's continuous, but it is also true to say there's a pretty wide spectrum from, uh, and I'll probably get into trouble with some people for talking like this, but just for, for ease of reference, you know, from, from relatively low sophisticated attackers 
using automated methods to state actors or significant crime groups. Mm-hmm. Because some of these significant crime groups are maybe not quite at the level in terms of capacity, capability, resources, time um, as a state actor, but certainly in terms of technical capability and know-how, they are, you know. Um, and, it, and it's continuous. So, so if you've not designed yourself to, to from the ground up, and some of the benefit for some of the cloud native companies that have, have sprung up over the last five, six, seven, ten years, is is that they they have the advantage, perhaps over older companies that are still working in a hybrid mode between cloud services and on-prem. Uh, everything's built on what was built twenty years ago, still there somewhere underneath, you know waiting to catch you out or to be exposed or to create the environment or the context that can be exploited or by which a failure occurs, etc. And trying to get that stuff out is obviously a and understand it and understand where it is is often a challenge. And I was just thinking as you know, as we're talking here about the evolution that we have as the old guys, I won't let producer Joe come in and say something detrimental to us. But you know, this evolution we've seen over this last 40, 50 years in the industries that we've all worked in. That's understandable given the way technology advances and we're moving in from this, you know, this mechanistic age into the information and knowledge management age. How have you found, Mick, as a as an individual operating in this environment and now in the position of a C-suite member, how have you found that you've had to evolve? Because one of the problems we see is, and this isn't just what we see, this is one of those global issues of leadership hasn't evolved enough to keep up. It hasn't accepted that this change has happened. There's not enough recognition of the pace of change and the unlearning that needs to take place. And therefore, a lot of what we did yesterday will work tomorrow mentality is still out there. And that's causing a lot of problems, especially as you mentioned, the younger generation that are coming in that are different, not in a bad or good way, but very different. And therefore, this clash of old and new almost and the different mindsets is a real problem. You're not like that. Right, I sense that from our first conversation and the numerous conversations we've had since and working with your teams. How have you not stayed in that rut as you've gone through this journey? It's a really difficult question to answer, actually, in, in, in all honesty. We don't ask easy questions here. No. You that, find another <laughs> podcast. I think it, it comes down to a number of things. One is, is that my own personality type is you're always seeking knowledge. You can't succeed in this. You, you just said it's a knowledge-based economy. And certainly with the, the role that I do, it's, it's incredibly knowledge-based. You know, so you have to keep up up to speed. So, you know, I'd probably dedicate just off the top of my head, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half a day just to learning at wow. least every day. Good for you. Yeah. Um, now, I enjoy it, but I also have to. Now, part of that is it takes you down a path of exploring capabilities that will help me achieve my mission, for want of a better way of putting it. Now, there's lots of people out there that can do cybersecurity and have the technical skills. That's not where I've sought to enhance my own capabilities, because why would I do that? I hire people to do that, and I surround myself with people who are better than me at doing it. So my job is to create the context for them to succeed and to architect systems, and I'm not talking about technical systems here, architect systems that deliver the outcomes that we want. So I deliberately sought to inform myself and educate myself around things that I think will help me in in those areas. There's another reason for it as well, which is those skills are going to stay with you forever. Technology ebbs and wanes. It comes and it goes, you know, in, 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 in terms of how it evolves. So I think that process has taken me 
I hate the phrase, but I'm going to use it on a journey. It's taken me, you know, on that evolution of my own thinking to realizing that there's actually a bit of a separation between what my vision is and what my teams are actually doing on a day-to-day basis. And there's a disconnect there. So how do I connect those two elements, the tactical element and the strategic thinking, so that the tactical side is delivering the strategic intent? How do I do that? How do I move that forward without falling into the trap of dictating to people better at their job than me as to how to do their job? So I think that that's the kind of the thinking process that I've gone through over quite a few years. Now, that, that at the same time, that is within an industry that is changing at a pace that you just would not believe. You know, the, 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 the change is astronomical, even if it's down to the fact of our understanding of to how bad actors act. You know, that's going through the roof. The number of cloud service providers that have big data Again, you know, another fairly meaningless phrase in its own right, but we understand what we mean. Sure. That have large amounts of data that can be analyzed for patterns. And when we do do that, we start to see that there are patterns. It's not all unknown and, and all um, a bit of, you know, witchcraft and so on and so forth. It's actually there are patterns in there that can be identified. So those things change and we need to move our people who are working at the coalface to enable them to meet the strategic vision while still doing their job, whilst using all that information. So that takes us to a place which is, okay, the old way of centralized control of maybe some participation, but also quite a bit of diktat as to how things should be. Maybe the way we measure things is another kind of constraint on people's ability to do things. Maybe we've got to change this because what we're seeking is much more of a kind of hierarchical organization. And we, we structured in this way. So I have accountability as the exec, but we have a distributed model within the company where there is shared responsibility for execution, but design strategy and you know, accountability sits with me. So what that helps us to do is to ensure that people working at the coalface are the actual people doing, doing the work and, and helping to design things and doing what is uh, appropriate within the context of what they're doing. But then to ensure that we we are drawing staff into the strategic intent through different tools and techniques, which I know we'll go on and talk about, to understand and challenge both the strategy and the means by which we deliver it. Now, that achieves a number of different things. One, it's about communication. So it helps me to, to communicate the strategy. Two, it's about feedback, more eyes on it from more different perspectives and more things, that's important. And that requires me to be open to significant challenge, which is sometimes difficult. Yep. Got to be open to it. Not only have you got to be open to it, you've got to be prepared to act on what, what you hear. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because if you're not, if you're not going to act on it, you're not open to it. You know, if you're not going to, if you're not going to act on it, you're, you're, you're better off not even asking, you know, that's, that's the thing is that, is that yes. we see a lot where organizations say, leaders say, we want to hear from our employees, tell us what we could be doing better. And then there's, it's, it's, it's like crickets, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I worked with one company in the past where they put up a website on their intranet saying, tell us how we can do better. They got thousands of responses. 
and they didn't respond to a single one and they didn't they didn't even they didn't even repeat back what they'd heard and so instead of helping the situation it actually undermines it, it makes it worse and infuriates people it's a really interesting point that you raise that as well as is because it, it, it immediately raises in my mind on top of all the things that you've said, the way that you ask the question and the way that you structure it is vitally important to be able to get something that is usable back. If you just ask the question, how can we do it better? I think you you might well be challenged in terms of being able to respond positively and what comes. I think it's essential to structure you know, these questions uh, in a way that gets openness, honesty, but also gives you feedback in a way that is, is usable. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We often say, you know, you, you need to stop providing answers as a leader and start asking better questions. As you said, it's how those questions are structured that prompt people to think, to stop and actually consider what it is you're asking and the way you're asking it and why you're asking. It. And I just wrote down a few things as you're talking then. And, you know, you, you're saying this struggle with being directive or not in the, in the position. And we speak about, you know, keeping your hand on the tiller and when do you let go and let the crew take the ship and when do you have to grab hold tight? And I loved how you talked about how you see your role as having to architect the system because it's exactly what it, this system of the complex moving parts that within that of which the majority are people. And it's, I love how you see your role as the leader of, of that is the architect of that is enabling that system to function by linking strategic vision to the coal face, bringing clarity to those doing the work who do it far better than you ever could. So you come hands off, but you're enabling and almost curating this environment for those people to function and bring their A game. hundred percent. And I think that it, I see my job just to take it a step further. My job is to create that system that helps the organizations consistently make good decisions. Love yep. that. that. That's the way I, that's what I tell myself every single day. Literally that it's not, I haven't just made it up. It's not a buzz phrase. I tell myself that that is what is you, your your desire is. It's not you making the decision. It's the decision being made within the organization at the right level that's appropriate. So that could be at a tactical level, an operational level or a strategic level. And yes, I do think in those terms. I know it's quite militaristic, but it just helps me to think, to think like that. But it's also about pushing that to your own leaders. So in most organizations, there is depth to, to, to leadership. Right. So it's all very well me saying this. But I need my leaders, my direct report, to live and breathe this as well. So you have to be very clear with people. This is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be. You know, get on board or maybe we need a discussion because you can't have somebody that undermines this because it will simply undermine the whole thing if one of your leaders is not attuned to what you're trying to do. And your staff will feel that and they will hear it. And they will respond in all likelihood in the negative to it as well. You won't get what you want. So you have to get your own leaders on, on board. Then you have to create the structure and ensure that they're clear that their job is to create an environment that the teams can deliver their outcomes effectively. So it's people focused, you know, it's intent based leadership, values based leadership, servant based leadership, all of those things. It's not one thing. When I hear people talking about, Oh, one thing's out of favor and another one's, it's all rubbish. It's kind of, they're all the toolbox and they're all to be used in context, you know, like, like all tools really. But you need to see all those three different levels of leadership. And if you can get to that point, 
then you've got a chance of designing that system to achieve your goal, which is good decision-making continuously. Mick, what you said is so important. This three layers of leadership that you identify is so important. And it's something that I think too many leaders don't think enough about. You have a lot of really good leaders who think, if I just model the right behaviors, if I just listen to my team, we're going to be okay. But they forget that they've got this layer in between them and the frontline employees. One, one company that we worked with called it the permafrost layer. <laughs> yes. That, I, and yeah. because it's so resistant to change, this middle management level is, is often in organizations, the layer that's resistant to change and is nervous about change too. And so some organizations know, but in a lot of organizations it is. And so getting, getting that cascade that you talked about of, of modeling the right behaviors as a senior leader, but then getting your direct reports to model and, and act in the right way, and then getting their direct reports to do that so that it really cascades down to the frontline leaders. That's what you need to have really effective two-way communications between the front line and the top of the house, between the factory floor, if you will, and the top of the house. But it's also what you need to be able to, to create an environment where people are not afraid to speak up, to create an environment where people have the trust to, sh- to, to speak up if they see something that they think could be done better or that something's, something's not going right. And that's a, that's a big challenge. And I just want to interject here. Listen to the language you're both using. Mick started it when Mick was saying, my leaders, my de- you know, my leaders. You don't see yourself as the leader. You know, you see yourself as a leader in an organization that is tiered with multiple leaders. And Bryce said, leaders at the front line. And I think this is a really important thing that executives today need to understand, but also the people in those positions. Leadership is not an individual by a role. Leadership is a capability that if we unleash it and enable people to be a leader, I don't care if you're the new intern who's just arrived or the CEO has been there 50 years. This is a capability that every human is able to bring to the table. And if you keep dismissing people as not being that leader because you're it, I'm the leader, then they're going to behave that way. But if you start to use that language and it starts with these small behavioral changes that you're a perfect example of, Mick, that people sense like, hey, my boss called me a leader. Best I go and look up what a leader is and start behaving like one. And they start to take ownership. And then you give them that responsibility as well as giving them the capabilities and enablement to do what they need to do. And you start to get a massive return on that because they're engaged, they're bought in, and they feel, again, bad as a journey phrase, empowered to do these things. But you're actually enabling them. And once you do that, you get that engagement, which I think is crucial. I, I couldn't agree more. There's two points I've raised on what you've both just said. Permafrost, you know, that notion of the permafrost, that's on the top leader. Nobody else, you allowed it to happen. Your responsibility to change it. That's the way I look at it. If I've got a, a permafrost sitting beneath me, it's going to get heated up and it's going to get removed. <laughs> that is, the, that is it. There is no other yeah, answer. Bring out the blowtorch. Yeah. Exactly. There is no other answer. Get on board or if you can't, maybe we'll find you something elsewhere in the organization if that's going to suit you or maybe we have a conversation about this isn't the place that you need to work so that problem of permafrost is on the leader that allowed it to happen not the people doing it 
because they are they are resisting change for a reason. You know, and this goes back to systems thinking. What kind of feedback loops are going on in the background that are bringing those people back to a position of stability rather than a position of change? So you're either you've either got you know reinforcing or balancing feedback loops going on somewhere that is doing that. That's on you to identify them and change them. That would be the first thing I'd say, and that that is the responsibility of the person who's architecting the system, if you want to call it that way. And it's often fear. It's often fear that they're it, it responding to. Yes, and and maybe conflicting feedback loops. So I'm yep. measuring you on one thing, but I'm asking for something else. Well, right. Hang on, how, how does this work? So you need to have yeah. consistency about what you're doing. The other point I'd sort of completely concur with is this notion that a leader is a leader. It doesn't matter. It's not having people responsibilities. It's about leading and driving things to success. So another tool that we make a lot of use of is Wardley mapping. So we use Wardley mapping. Um, if you understand Wardley mapping, which I know you guys do, but, you know, it, it, it's anchoring on a customer and a customer's needs and then understanding the value chain and the relative maturity of each of the components as to how it's done. Now, in a modern organization, those components are delivered by lots of different teams and never delivered by a single team. And frequently, there's a supply chain involved as well. So what you're looking for in your leadership is people who can not only manage the node of the graph, but the connections as well. And that's what leadership is. It's stepping outside of your own team, understanding the landscape you're involved in. That's what Wardley Mapping helps us to do. Understanding intent and strategic intent and North Star, and then acting in a way to make things happen, which is slightly obscure way of putting it, but it's context dependent, isn't it? And it's that is the kind of person and the kind of mentality and the critical thinking that we're trying to engender in people to have resilience, because resilience starts with your people, not your technology. What you've just described there, Mick, is, is literally the recipe for successful leadership and effective leadership, it, not just in business, but everywhere. You know, we, I've had the privilege in my work to work with some senior leaders from Delta Force in, in the U.S. Army, which is, for those who don't know, the U.S. Army's most elite unit. And what you just described there about knowing the nodes, because Delta Force is not a siloed organization. They know that they're functioning with air support, with logistical support, local partners, these things. But having the understanding of the commander's intent and the confidence that you don't need to have spelled out for you exactly what to do, that you have your job as a leader is to think, even if you're the lowest leader on the totem pole, is still to think and to implement the commander's intent with reference to these nodes, these, these, these other actors, these other these other partners that you're working with so that you can bring the right forces to bear on the problem. That's true in the military and it's true in business. It's true everywhere. And it is, you've just outlined that perfectly. I wish that, you know, I, I wish that, that that right there is like is like a three-minute MBA course. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> if only it was that easy. <laughs> I think I, I think if you if you add to that, is in most commercial organizations, outside of government, outside of the military. I always have a, a slight concern, let me put it that way, of what I'd call, you know, airport book syndrome. 
where you know <laughs> yes but now it's not that the ideas in that book are wrong it's just hey i've written wrong. some books that have been in the airport so you know uh... <laughs> sorry but it's not no that, it's true though it's true yeah. though but it, it, it's there's a couple of things that i just raised which is it's not that they're wrong it's like there's some great ideas in them but there is a survivorship bias in all of those books nobody writes the book and goes this is how i got it all wrong and it becomes a bestseller you know and maybe that would be the book that's interesting by the way um but there's a survivorship bias, there's context and so on and so forth. Now, one of the things about taking, particularly in the role that we do, which is adversarially based, risk-based, uncertainty, volatile, you know, all of those different things, taking lessons learned from the military is a sensible thing to do in my book. Um, but at the same time, you've got to recognize the fact that your context is very, very different. Everybody in the military is a volunteer. Everybody's been trained with an inch of their life. Everybody is usually aligned to a single mission. You know, there are standard operating procedures. People practice, people lead at different levels. People are taught to be leaders. Where, where in business do we teach people to be leaders? Teach them to be well, managers. That's the problem. That's the problem right there. Nail on the head right there. And teaching somebody to be a manager, arguably, still important, but maybe more relevant to the old age rather than the new knowledge-based you know, age in terms of being a leader. And I think that we have to be very wary of taking things from those contexts and just saying, let's do that. Mm -hmm. yep. Because we lack in a commercial organization, the scaffolding that holds all of that stuff together. And it is, I always come back to systems thinking, it is a system. And it's often presented as a component of the system and you lack the context of the other things. So we just need to be mindful of those things. Take all the good ideas, but be mindful of that context and what's missing. And then think about what am I going to do in my context to provide scaffolding for this? It, 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 you've just pointed out what I think is one of the critical weaknesses of private enterprise on both sides of the Atlantic, which is a, a really dangerous lack of investment in training. And I'm not just saying that because I own a company that trains leaders and decision makers. I'm saying that apps just, just is a core belief of mine. And it, it's something, you know, you talk about the difference in the military. I've told this story before. When I was at Fort Leavenworth, when I was at the Command and General Staff College and I was going through the Red Team Leader course and as working on my book, I, I had lunch every couple of weeks with General Bob Brown, who was the, the commander of, of the Command and General Staff College there great, great flag officer, recently retired. And the first thing he told me, I, I won't retell the whole story, but the first thing he told me was, how are you going to teach this to business? And, and I said, what do you mean? I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, teach it the same way I learned it. I'm going to, I'm going to condense it down, you know, and, you know, we don't, they don't, we don't need, business leaders don't need to have all the weeks of modules about, you know, cultural anthropology and stuff that we're studying and stuff. I'm going to focus on the tools and stuff. I told him, I said, you know, the program I'm in is about a three-month program. I'm going to condense it down to four one-week modules. He said, that's the point. He said, and, and he was on one of the president's CEO councils, is he said, I've met all these CEOs being on this council as the token guy in green on the council. And if they're lucky, they get to go to an executive MBA program as part of their fast track to the top. But that's it. They may get an hour or two of training or coaching. Maybe if they're, if they're lucky, they get monthly one-on-one -on -one coaching, but they're not getting intense training. He said, as a, as a flag officer in the US Army, I'm getting at least one month a year 
of dedicated training where I'm not leading the organization. I am sitting in a classroom, learning new things, learning new skills, learning how to be a more effective leader, learning how to be a more effective decision maker. He says, the thing that I am shocked by is that that doesn't happen in industry. I, I, I agree. The other thing about the military is, is when you take on a leadership role, you've probably been trained, you've had to pass a course, you're then being mentored, not for a short period of time, for 10 weeks, forever. Forever, yeah, constantly. And then you do yeah. something else and you go up a level and you're still being mentored forever and you're still being pulled up when you get it wrong. And so it's constant. And I think we could, that, that's not going to happen in a commercial context. It's, it's just not realistic to expect it to happen. But that doesn't mean that there aren't certain aspects of behaviors and outcomes and structure and systems. And I, I'm sorry, I just keep talking about the same thing because it is just so relevant. System. It's the foundation yeah. to everything. It is what is the system that you're building? And if you've got a, you know, in corporate terms, you know, what is my workforce and talent plan? And particularly in my world, again, I need a workforce and talent plan that delivers the workforce and talent I need. And it's quite specific. I need people who are critical thinkers. I need people um, who are going to challenge the status quo because the status quo is what will kill us. You know, that cliche, I can't remember who it was, but it's not what you don't know that's going to kill you. It's what you know with absolute certainty that just ain't so. So I need Mark Twain. And Mark Twain. Yeah. So yeah. I need people who are going to, in the right way, with the right emotional intelligence, challenge the status quo. Can I expect them to do it off their own back within an environment that doesn't provide the structures to be able to do that? No. So I have to create the structures for it. And I think, again, systems thinking, you know, events are a consequence of behaviors. Behaviors are a consequence of the structure in the systems. So if you want to intervene, you've really got to intervene at a structural level. Uh, absolutely. Right. And there's a lot of daylight between doing a month of training a year and doing nothing. It's a great, great conversation. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to come back to something that you talked about earlier, which is more to the core of your job, thinking about what I would call systemic or strategic security. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So much great stuff uh, in the first half of the show. And as I said before the break, Mick, I want to turn now to your role, not just as a leader in general, but your role as a cybersecurity leader. And you mentioned how you own the big picture as part of that, that you have a team of people who are, who are at the front line and your job is to look at the big picture. And I think that's so important because one of the things that we're learning as we launch our own intelligence and security practice at Red Team Thinking is that there's a, there's a capability gap in a lot of organizations between 
tactical cybersecurity, which is keeping the bad guys out and often uses cybersecurity red teaming to do that. And what our colleague, uh, Colonel Itai Shapira of the Israeli Defense Intelligence calls systemic security or strategic security, which is what he describes as what is your response once that fails? Because inevitably, inevitably, it's going to fail. No one is going to get it right 100% of the time. And you know, his observation and the observation of others that we work with is that a lot of organizations are laser focused on that frontline mission of tactical security and spend very little time thinking about systemic security, thinking about what happens if there is a breach, what happens if the bad guys get in, what do we do then? And so when that happens, they're running around with their hair on fire because they haven't thought about that. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and about in the context that you mentioned earlier of your role as a cybersecurity leader. Okay, I'm not, I'm not convinced I'd agree with the proposition. Um, okay. I, I, I'm sure it's true in, in some plenty of organizations, but I think an organization that uh, has a significant risk exposure, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I think what I, I would suggest is, is that it's the connecting tissue between the different activities that is often not quite as, as unified as it could be. And sometimes that's structural because you'll have a cybersecurity team focused on uh, prevention for one, you know, the, the, I mean, there's there's a classic NIST model here, which is, you know, identify, prevent, detect, respond, recover. And I think that would be what you would mean by systemic security. It's, it, it's not necessarily a phrase I'd use, but I, I think that's what you mean. So most organizations will have some sort of coverage across those things. Now, the issue is, is for each of those elements, are they connected by design and architecture? And that's not just technology. It's not just process. It's very much about people. Um, and, to, and what is the efficacy of each of those things? And importantly, how do you test it? Now, I use the word test. Well, that's, yeah, that's the key right there. That 100%. So I use the word test, not assurance. And so in my world, in my head, there's a distinction between those two things. Assurance is almost auditing. So are we doing the things that we said we're going to? Testing is that does it meet its goal? Is the efficacy there? Now, one of the problems that I've seen frequently in the roles that I've had is, is that it's not uncommon to see a security team or a cyber risk team or, you know, whatever the structure and whatever the phraseology we choose to use to focus on a particular framework as a means to see good practice. And by the way, in the cybersecurity world, there's no such thing as best practice. Best practice implies there is one way of doing something. That just is not true. So if any of our listeners are listening to somebody talking about best practice, maybe you want to challenge that view. Good practice, absolutely. There's a difference. Good practice allows you the flexibility as to how you deploy it. Best, best practice is this is it. So I see a lot of organizations that focus on frameworks, which is great. Frameworks are good to get you to a level. But once you reach that level, there's a diminishing return. And, and uh, what I see often is, is that the framework becomes the objective. It becomes almost the competing model. You know, we need to be at the maturity level of four or five or whatever. And the truth is, is that isn't your competing model. The state actor who's trying to breach you is your competing model. 
That's the difference between assurance and testing. Assurance tells me whether I'm meeting a framework or similar type activity. And normally, just to add a, a degree here, this is the difference between complicated and complex. So complicated is about building capabilities. They tend to be complicated. You need experts to help you to do it. But there is generally an input, a process, an output, and you can pull levers in different ways to improve the way that works. But when it all comes together, security is an emergent property of that complex system. And at that point, you need to be able to probe a complex system to understand yes. its performance. So that comes down to testing. Now, what do we classify as testing? So there are lots of different ways you can do it. So there are a whole raft of different ways we can do it technically. So they would range from scanning our attack surface and attack surfaces you know, the, the part of our organization that is exposed to the attacker and that they can interact with. You know, if you're not particularly technically orientated, think doors and windows in a house. Constantly scanning and testing for that and trying to exploit that. That's one way of doing it. Breach simulation software that runs continuously within your environment that is fed by threat intelligence to understand and try and harden your defenses. Good architecture, the design of the house makes a huge difference in terms of making it harder and, and, and improving your chances of detection and response. Capture the flag is another one, which is like, well, we don't really care how you do it. Just see if you can get there. Now, that's really right. testing your defenses. If you have a competent tester to do it, you know, and to emulate a reasonably, uh, you know, a reasonably emulate the kind of attack you're going to be confronted with. Some people get very excited about this sort of stuff and say, well, you're not really emulating the attacker. But if I breached you and I didn't need to, that's all you needed to know. Yeah, it worked. Why would I use some fancy technique? I already breached you. That's all you needed to know. But then you end up with, you can do all of those sort of things, and we do. But there's another level in there, which is actually table topping. And table topping, there are multiple different techniques that we can use. So one of them we would use is pre-mortems. This is absolutely something right. we use all the time. Um, now, the way I describe this, if I can, is what I'm looking at, and without a picture, it's kind of hard to describe. Can, can I just jump in here before before you describe it? Because I, I just want to say you, you just hit the nail on the head of what I was talking about. You know, we were when we were talking about this, Marcus and I were talking about this with Shapiro recently, and we were talking about a, a electrical company in the United States that has a responsibility for a major chunk of the power grid. I'm not going to say who it is. Um, and you know, he made the observation. They do a great job of testing their systems using pen testers, using, you know, white hat hackers and stuff to prevent security breaches of their system. But they do almost nothing to simulate what happens once their system is breached and now the power grid is down and they don't have control of their computer systems. And they have a, yeah, they have an SOP somewhere they have a book that tells them what to do, but they haven't brought that out. They haven't done, as you said, Nick, a pre-mortem on that or any other sort of testing of that. And so his point was, if you are you can do a great job with all that other stuff, but if you're not also testing at that level, which is what he calls the systemic level, you're going to get caught with your pants down. So go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, just I, 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 I agree yeah. that. I mean, I, I would add one other thing as well, which is I would complement everything that we've just spoken about with computer simulation as well. Yeah. Like different methods. So you're using technical means at scale. You're using technical means as a scalpel. You're using computer simulation to understand uncertainty and leverage, you know, 
what's the sensitivity analysis here? Where do I need to focus? Optimization of limited budget, all those sort of things. Um, but then tabletops take many different forms. So a pre-mortem pre for me, um, literally, is how do we end up in catastrophe? Because we've designed our system with multiple levels, like all most organizations, most complex systems are well defended with multiple levels of defense. So if you're going to have a failure, it is in all probability not going to be a black swan. It's going to be the confluence of unexpected, unlikely events coming together and being a cascading failure. Now, ostensibly, as a leader, the chances are your natural thinking is, is, is that, well, that's quite unlikely. It's not going to happen. But the truth is that in most organizations, there's a whole honeycomb of risks that have been accepted over many, many, many years that you're sitting on and you don't know. And so we use pre-mortems and we use the expression, it's taking individual knowledge and institutionalizing it. That's the way we describe it internally. Is, is that, I love that. That knowledge exists in this organization, but it's not been institutionalized. So we want to pull pre-mortems, say how, do, and we call it the red zone. So it's effectively a risk curve, which is a skewed tail risk, saying green, these are expected events. The system is designed to protect us from that. People operate that system and they constantly, you know, manipulate it to keep us out of trouble. We have a plausible set of scenarios whereby we've got to respond to those. So how do we respond to that? And then you have catastrophic risk. And my primary role is to stop us having catastrophic risk. Now, of course, I've got those other roles as well. But primary one is stop catastrophic. So pre-mortems help us get to that point. And those techniques of, you know, um, bringing the right people into the room, not necessarily senior people into the room, providing psychological safety, framing the questions in an appropriate way, and allowing through the techniques people to evolve their thought process. Try your best to eliminate the biases the group thing, everything else, to get to a point where you're exposing what is actually known within the organization. It says, well, actually, the way you think it works isn't the way it works. How many times have we heard that? Not too often. And I'll continue to hear it until the day I retire. You know, so that's what you're trying to get to. And then you can take action. So that's, that's not quite what you were talking about because that's pre-event. But post-event, it's exactly the same thing. What is our response to... X, you know, and then how do we how do we challenge our thinking about our capability there? And I think too few organizations do that. Yeah. Yeah. Way too few. I, I particularly love it. I might get the name wrong. Is, is it the devil within? The enemy my, within. my own way of looking at this. How yeah. The enemy within. Ah, oh, yeah. Our the enemy yeah. within. Yeah, the enemy yeah, within. My favorite tools. I, I love it yeah. because it's like, come on, we know we're gonna mess this up. So how are we gonna mess it up? Now, if you frame that in that way, I think I was listening to one of your podcasts, one of the early podcasts, and it was about permissioning people to think in that way, which I completely agree with, which is if you go through a whole strategy and you spend three days on an offsite and then right at the end of it, it goes, so anybody got any thoughts about how we'll mess this up? Nobody's going to say anything because you've not permissioned them to do it. Right. You have to create yeah. the context again for it. And trying to get people to think in that way um, requires psychological safety. You know, I mean, I don't attend these um, sessions 
for the reason that I think my attend, I'm desperate to, I want to, but I'm pretty certain that my attendance will skew it in a way, or, or at least there is the potential that it will. And people will say things or do things, et cetera, that, that they think that we want to hear. So I don't attend, you know, uh, and then we, I, I spend a lot of time looking at the outcomes. You know, um, we use a lot of, you know, technology to help people um, think, write, share, dot voting, all of those techniques that, you know, that we went through with you guys uh, previously in training that we use them all the time in, in, in this way. And I find it super helpful. It also engages people. They think their voice is being heard and their voice is being heard. That's the critical right. thing. And taken forward into being actioned as we talked about earlier. Yeah. And I, I just want to build on Mick. You know, we spoke right at the beginning about how you've enabled yourself as a leader with this personal learning journey, you know, your daily routine, your daily evolution and we were talking about the break about you know the darwinian we evolve or die and the industry that you're in and the leader position you're in so we're quite clear now how you've evolved as an individual how are you enabling that for your people you talked you mentioned a couple of tools then but how how are you as a leader because one of the most appalling things i see many organizations is their learning and development offering which is a seven layer click through to get a linkedin learning session you know, which people just don't bother with. How are you creating those capabilities for people to be trained, understood, adopted, and then utilized? As you said, when you're not in the room, how are they using those and doing that thing that you want them to do without having you holding that tiller and driving it? Well, I think a a couple of things. I think to be fair to HR departments, I think that the, the onus is on the leader, the person who's responsible to create that environment again. So, if you're in a place where you've got those kind of click-throughs, then is that not maybe an indication that the leaders themselves are not taking their leadership responsibility because HR feels the need to push this? Nail on the you head know? again. So, so yeah, I'm not yes. going to point to HR and say, yeah. because the intent is correct. The issue is whether you've got sufficient leaders in your organization to drive leadership in the right way. You know? So that that would be number one. And, and you, you will sense all the way through this that, Personal responsibility as a leader is critical in my belief system. Absolutely. You know, so I wouldn't necessarily blame HR for it. The other thing I would say is, is it's a really complex um, thing to bring somebody up to a level that you would like them to be at. Um, if, if, if that's probably the wrong way of putting it, but it's incredibly complex. It's continuous for a start. It's about having the right Go back to something we said earlier on. I have to role model. I'll be number one. That's the way you bring people up. I have to expose myself to people critiquing what I'm saying. I have to create the environment where they're happy to do it. I have to respond to it. I have to do all those things. Values. I have to display the values all the time. People are watching. People are looking. They take their judgment and their lead from their leaders. That's a that's a truism, right? So if the bit like broken windows theory, I suspect, that if your leaders are morally bankrupt, then you'll get no, you know, your staff are are going to respond to that in a particular way. So you've got to, your north, your compass has got to face firmly north. That's number one. You've got to be honest with people. You've got to be truthful with people. You've got to be fair to people. You've got to give people a chance. And they've got to believe that you care about them. And if you don't care about them, you will never convince somebody that you do. So you, it, it's as simple as that. You can't falsify that. We all know it when somebody does it. So you have to do all those sort of things. You have to give people time. 
They have to remember 40 years ago when I went into the workplace. I was an idiot. Who isn't? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's kind of like remember where you yeah, came from. Absolutely. You know, give right. people time. Give, give people time. Give them an opportunity. Give people an opportunity. Be very clear on what you're asking for them. What is my expectation? Do you have the competence to do it? Have you got the clarity about what's required? Can we help you in any way? Can we give you moral support? Don't worry about making errors. Escalate and, and talk continuously. Don't just go off and do something and then tell us later on, if you're not sure about something, have a conversation. Those conversations are welcome. So it's creating all of that environment. The goals, clarity. There's another thing on goals, just a quick one, just to throw in. You've got to find the balance between goals that are really projects an individual and goals that unify a team. So then you've got the challenge, which is how do I create a team goal where that gives people the opportunity to cognitively loaf? You know, so that's down to leadership again is who's cognitively loafing. But I need a North Star for the team. So you're going to have a team goal, not just individual goals. And if the team fails on the team goal, we all fail on our goals. That affects everybody. That affects compensation. So you're trying to create that environment where everybody's pulling in the right direction. Everybody believes they've got a voice. Those that want to be leaders have that opportunity, are mentored, are tutored, are allowed to make mistakes. Those that don't, there's nothing wrong with that as long as they're in a role and they're highly competent and capable at, at the role that they're doing. Why force somebody to be something they're not? You know, so recruitment obviously becomes critical to this in terms of you bringing in not the right technical skills, but the right, you know, personality type. And that and that's a growth that we're not expecting some unicorn to walk through the door who's got everything that we want. We want somebody who's open, has the right personality, open, and has growth. If, if you, you're that person, you want to come and work for a great organisation, look me up. No, it's having that unifying objective, isn't it, that, that brings that cohesive focus and behavior to a team that people get behind as well. You know, if you know where you're going as a team and if you don't pull your part of it, then you let the team down. Then that starts to bring that ownership to the group as well and individuals. Technically, it's incredibly challenging to find that goal and to actually articulate it. You know, I mean, um, I think it was Stan, Stanley McChrystal in Team of Teams who one of the things that it, if it wasn't him, it was, it was uh, another chap talking about the same thing that that unifying goal was critical to kind of pulling that organization up to be able to deliver what was what was necessary absolutely how do you how do you make the time how do you make the case though when you're when you're dealing with all your operational pressures to provide the training that we talked about though because that's something that a lot of leaders struggle with you know, yeah. they want to develop these capabilities. You know, you talked about the critical thinking, cognitive capabilities. They want to develop those in their teams, but they're so busy fighting fires all the time. They're not though. They're not really that busy. He's calling it out. I love it. Yeah, no, uh, listen, uh, nobody's saying that you're not really busy. But but I've got a badge. It says double busy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that one second. What I'm saying is, is, there's a difference between working in the organization and working on the organization. And if you're a senior leader, your objective is to work on the organization. So I need to build a capability. If I'm just going to go, I can't do it because we're a bit busy. That's not the answer. You know, you need to, you, you've got to, it's about making choices. So make the choice and send your people to do what they need to do and then build the systems to allow them to do it. Get on with it. Stop whining that you're too busy. Oh man. 
I couldn't say that better myself. Mick, you, sir, are a thinking leader. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. This is such great stuff. This is such good advice for leaders. It's not easy, though, and I'm not claiming it is. What, what I'm no. saying is you have to decide what you're going to do and what you're going to be. Then you have to find the way to do it. And just making excuses all the time for why you cannot do it is not, it, it, you've got to challenge yourself and say, well, am I in the right position here? Am I the right person for this job? Because this is my job. It is. No, you're right. This is great stuff. Man, this is so, I, I really feel like this was a master course for leaders today. I really do. Thanks so much for sharing all this with us, Mick. Thanks so much for sharing this with our audience. Really appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure. I hope it was useful. I enjoyed it. So, But then I like talking and hearing myself talk. So, <laughs> It was fabulous, Mick. Thank you so much. We look forward to speaking to you again. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the next idea-filled episode. Also, check out Bryce and Marcus's YouTube channel, Red Team TV. There you'll find video of today's podcast as well as previous episodes. And don't forget to visit redteamthinking.com to learn more about Red Team Thinking work and Marcus and Bryce's upcoming online courses. While you're there, take our free quiz to find out how you rate as a Red Team Thinker and if your organization has a Red Team culture. Because who thinks wins? Wins.